For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. From the revelation to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It has been said of medieval cathedrals that they proclaim the gospel in stone. Today, even as the prevailing culture tries to think something like this, what rotten extravagance, how many hungry people had to die for that cathedral? How ostentatious is that? Who couldn't watch in horror when Notre Dame burned? These cathedrals are not just cultural achievements built without the help of computer, computer drafting or calculators. They, are, they speak to how we as Christians do not believe in an idea, but in the incarnate Jesus. One cannot imagine a monument to calculus or quantum mechanics or microchips, but only to those whom we have to thank for them. Buildings like this one were built in the twilight of this period before we became captive to minimalism, before we became so terribly practical. You know, if we wanted to build this building, it would cost something like three and a half million dollars. And, you know, I often thought, man, if we were going to do it right, we would really be limited. That would be hard. But since the medieval period, churches have done all kinds of things to show forth the faith in stone. And traditionally, they have opted for stone and octagonal baptismal fonts. You'll notice that we have done the same thing here at Christ Church. The baptismal font, though round, has eight unique faces, four angels and four crosses. There was a time when just about everyone knew the significance of this octagonal shape, but this has since been lost. Many of you were baptized in immersion baptistries. Some of you were baptized in rivers or pools. And at Christ Church, for most of our history, baptisms were administered in a Rubbermaid trough that I bought at Tractor Supply Company. <laughs> but I will always remember what our, what our bishop said on the day that he consecrated that stone font. He said, it sends all the right signals about baptism, what we believe about it. Many people come in and ask, what Gothic church did you pull this from? And, of course, it's brand new. And there are many good features, but the one I want to focus on today is that it is eight-sided, octagonal. And no, it's not a stop sign. The church fathers spoke eloquently about the eighth day, an unending day of new creation. It had taken six days to create the world, and on the seventh day God rested. On an eschatological eighth day, all of creation would enter into this eternal Sabbath. This was not only an image of the new creation, but an apology for why Christians worship on Sundays. We worship on both the first day and the eighth day, the eighth day being the day of resurrection. We Christians end the week in the beginning, and we begin it in the end. We worship Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega. Secondly, the fathers noted that in the book of Genesis, Noah and his sons and their wives numbered how many people? Eight. They first made reference to 1 Peter 3, where Peter draws a connection between the salvation of Noah from the flood and the waters of baptism. He says eight persons were brought safely through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul teaches that to be baptized is to be baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, to put on Christ, being made a member of his body and his covenant family. This is prefigured by the saving of Noah and his family through the ark of salvation for them. Well, we, make, we actually make reference to this in our baptismal liturgy. In a few moments, Father Jonathan will say, Almighty and everlasting Father, in your great mercy you saved Noah and his family in the ark from the destruction of the flood, prefiguring the sacrament of holy baptism. Lastly, octagonal baptismal fonts recall us to the eight Beatitudes. In fact, uh, you know, a friend of mine used to say, proper steeples are octagonal too because they show the, the blessing of the Beatitudes upon the people of God, the saints. The understanding is this, that the blessed life, the saintly life, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of God's grace, made evident in poverty of spirit, in holy mourning, in meekness, in hunger and thirst for righteousness, in mercy, in purity of heart, and in peacemaking. These gifts are poured out upon the baptized by the gift of the Holy Spirit, who always works to bring about spiritual fruit in the life of the Christian. So the ancient church understood that baptism is about entering into an everlasting covenant kingdom through being joined bodily to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, washed and forgiven of sin, being made members of Christ and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No one in the ancient church could have possibly imagined that anyone would ever say something like, well, it is just a symbol. No, that's not what Scripture says. Peter, for instance, on the day of Pentecost, proclaims to the crowd, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the Romans, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised by the dead, by, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As well to the Galatians, he writes, as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And to the Colossians, you were buried with Christ in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. In short, the church has taught that baptism makes us, as the Anglican Catechism says, a member of Christ, the child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. In baptizing infants and small children, the church shows forth that baptism is not primarily about choosing the life of salvation for ourselves. It is rather about God's election of us, his children, whom he has chosen. God choosing us to receive the benefits of his divine life. Through the waters of baptism, we are bound to the promises made by us or on our behalf. These children baptized today, William and Olivia, will be bound to believe and to live just as their parents and godparents have promised on their behalf. With God's grace and help, they will continue in this faith and continue in this new life. Of course, all of us have the capacity to walk away from baptism. God does not obliterate free will with the waters of baptism, not at all, but rather grants us the grace necessary to freely choose as he commands, to live the life of faith. 
The Christian lives by the abundance of grace, given power by the overflowing spring of living water promised to us in the gospel. And this is where I want to say, God has given every gift necessary for lives of holiness, the lives of the saints, to us. This is a complete and gratuitous gift. And I want to say as well, this does not do away with the need for an active and living faith at all. In fact, it should reinforce it for you how necessary that is. To be a saint does not mean to be one who has exercised extreme willpower in living a holy life. To be a saint does not mean pulling yourself up by your bootstraps like a good American. It means, first of all, abandonment of the self to the will of God, total surrender. The saints have prayed in every age that God would give them the gift of a will knit to his will, of a heart knit to his heart. They do not presume to be great in and of themselves. In fact, they consider themselves to be the most insignificant people to walk the earth. I think today of Therese Lussou who said, I'm nothing, I'm small, I'm little, I'm a little child. Of Padre Pio, the great uh, Italian stigmatic who, who was notoriously grumpy and hated all the attention he was given because he didn't think he deserved it. And yet, as Benedict XVI has remarked, the greatest apologetic for our faith is the art the church creates and the saints she produces. Why can we say this? How can we say this? That art and the saints are the greatest apologetic for the faith we hold? I think it has something to do with this, and I'd submit to you that it has something to do with this. In, a, in the midst of a world full of ugliness, despair, and longing, beauty shakes us from our complacency. It is not innocuous. It threatens our deepest prejudices and pulls us out of ourselves. Beautiful art and beautiful people proclaim the gospel. And it is a shame that we no longer build cathedrals that proclaim the gospel in stone. It is an even greater shame that the church's answer to the greatest ills in our society is often something between trite moralisms and political agendas. No, the greatest thing we can do is make saints. In fact, if you ask me, what are we going to do about this problem you read about in the newspaper? Say, be a saint. <laughs> what are we going to do about this? Be a saint. The saints are not innocuous at all. In fact, they're quite dangerous. They're dangerous because they are the mortal enemies of lukewarmness and mediocrity. The saints take away every excuse, every good reason we give for avoiding holiness. They are proof that great holiness is available to every Christian. How do we know this? Because every saint started off exactly where you are now, sitting in a pew, hearing a sermon, witnessing a baptism, kneeling at a rail to receive communion. Every single saint sat where you are now. The saints show us that we are not bereft of grace. In fact, it is quite the opposite. We have more grace than we could shake a stick at, more than we can ask for or imagine, as the Collect says. All the gifts are there. We have everything we need. In fact, one of the things we should remember on All Saints Day is that every gift any saint has ever had belongs to us truly. For we are one body, and the gifts of the Spirit, as Paul says, 
are given for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you might look across the pew at someone who sings beautifully and say, my, she has a beautiful voice. I wish I had a voice like that. Guess what? You do. You might say, she has a beautiful family. I wish I had a family like that. Guess what? You do. She has a beautiful life. Guess what? It's yours. She has a beautiful faith. Guess what? It's yours. We saw in images on the screen just a while ago the martyrs of Libya killed on the beaches by ISIS. They're not distant from us. They're our brothers and sisters. In fact, they gather with us this very morning. The saints in every age expose the uncomfortable truth. The reason even now that you are not a saint is that you truly don't want to be. They tell us clearly, you have no one to blame but yourself. And yet, how do you become holy? Has anybody figured it out? How do you become holy? You can't. The power's not in you. You don't have it. And that's the paradox at the heart of the Christian life and the life of the saints. It's exactly as Jesus says it is. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child cannot enter it. Note what Jesus doesn't say. Whoever does not grab hold of the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He doesn't say whoever works hard enough to receive the kingdom of God like a child cannot enter it. He says whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child cannot enter it. And what do little children do when they want something? I'm thinking of an 18-month-old toddler. You know, a little. What do they do? We know how it is. This is when parents say, use your words. (laughs) Say they're in the kitchen and they're looking up at the refrigerator and they know there's milk in there and they just look up at you with their arms up in the air and they go, And we say, would you like some milk? And they go, "Ah!" use your words, milk. All that little child can do is look up, hold her hands in the air, and cry out to a loving father for what she needs. To cry out to a loving father for more. To hold up hands and say, more! More food, more love, more milk, more help, more grace, more holiness. The Christian calls out for Jesus, the good and loving shepherd, the Lamb of God, to guide them to living water where they may drink and be satisfied, where they can thirst for righteousness and have it. Calls out to Jesus, the good shepherd, comfort me, encourage me, feed me. And this is the thing. For the saints, there's always more. In our house, we run out of milk on a regular basis. And you got a little 18-month-old, milk! We say, we don't have any milk, and I don't milk! It is never like that with Jesus. He never says, I don't have anything to give you. He always says, yes, more. It's yours. Have it. 
Just when you think you've gone as far as possible in the Christian life, you have barely scratched the surface. That's what the saints show us, that God is an unfathomable depth. There is always more, and Jesus has saved the best for last. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.